God, we are about to read your word. We know that you who made the ear and you who formed the eye must come again to open the ear to hear and to unveil the eyes to see. And so we are praying for illumination and for hearing. Not hearing that ends in the ear, Lord, but hearing that begins in the ear and goes into our mind, down into the heart, takes residence there, and comes out in our lives. Lord, this is the illumination, this is the guidance that we seek from you this morning. Would you give it to us through Jesus Christ? Amen. Our sermon text this morning comes from 1 Timothy. We're continuing in the series talking about what is a missional church and how is a missional church shaped by the gospel. We'll be reading 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. This is God's eternal word. It cannot be broken. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle, I am telling the truth, I am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I desire then, therefore, that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Amen. You may be seated. Well, men, here we go. What is gospel masculinity? I read an ad this week written by a girl who believes she has a pretty good grasp on the topic. She's seeking a guy who is, and I quote, kind, creative, and caring. He loves music, philosophy, and nature. He should be a vegetarian and prefer tea. <laughs> he should not be aggressive, nor obsessed with football, tools, or computers. He should like walks on sandy beaches, appreciate nature, especially waterfalls, and quiet trips to libraries. He should enjoy kittens and puppies and be introspective. He should be a bit soft-spoken, sensitive, and a patient listener. I re when I read that, I also read the comment posted by a girl who read the, uh, the ad for a relationship, and she said, good luck. <laughs> <laughs> but if such a man were to exist, we might call him a modern man, mightn't we? The alternative is the more old-school, stereotypical guy who, if he were to make rules for relationships, they might read something like this. Nodding and looking at your watch is an acceptable response to, I love you. <laughs> <laughs> I 
When your girlfriend or spouse really needed to talk to you during the game, she appears in a little box in the corner of the TV screen. <laughs> during a timeout. <laughs> At the end of the workday, a whistle blows and you jump out of your window and slide down the tail of a brontosaurus right into your car like Fred Flintstone. Military tanks are far easier to rent in this ideal world, and garbage takes itself out, and instead of beer belly, you get beer biceps. <laughs> so we have quite a conflicting picture of masculinity there, don't we? New school, old school, I think it's pretty obvious that we're confused as a culture. And so what do we do when we are confused? Do we look inward? Do we look to, to human teachers? Or at the end of the day, do we look to God's word? How are we to decide between the meat-eating, aggressive dude who likes beer or the metrosexual, vegetarian, tea-drinking guy who plays with kittens? There's no way to, to win that. Those, those two are going to argue all day long. So the gospel cuts through our prejudices on both sides and guides us to his truth. So I've called my sermon this morning Gospel Masculinity, or we could call it True Masculinity. And my sermon is divided into two parts. First, I'm going to explain the text, and then second, I'm going to apply the text in three points. So the first part is the explanation. The text is 1 Timothy 2.8, and it reads, again, if you look at it, please, I desire then, or therefore, that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. The context of this verse comes as a transition. The word then in the ESV, or therefore in some of your other translations, indicates we're moving from one line of thinking to another line of thinking. So the, the place where we're coming from are Paul's instructions about prayer, which is, as I mentioned in, earlier in the service, was of first importance, or the first thing Paul wanted to address. In other words, praying is at the heart of accomplishing God's mission in the world, which he explains in some detail in that passage. There is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, that all might be saved. That's why prayer is of first importance. And prayer not just for some people, but for all kinds of people. And kings and those in authorities are given as an example of a subset of the kinds of people we are to be praying for. So that's the context, is setting forth the mission of the church and the kinds of work that we are to do as people in the church. We're to be involved in that mission. And what he's transitioning to, then, are some specific tips or suggestions or guidelines for the way that this missional work is to be carried out. And he's about to talk about a woman's conduct in the church, which I'll get to next week. I hope. I say that because... Any man who's preaching on a woman's conduct in the church does so with fear and trembling. <laughs> but before he gets to women, and this I can appreciate, he first has to stop and talk to the men. And that's where we're at today. And I say men, not people, because even though the word man is translated in different ways in Scripture, 
The word man is sometimes used in an inclusive sense, like mankind, and the Greek word for that would be anthropoi. We get anthropology from that. But then when he wants to talk to the dudes, to the guys, to the males, he uses the word andre. So he says, pray for all kinds of people, anthropoi. Now guys, andre, I want you to pray. So this is a command to males. And it is a transitional command. And so he's putting males, if you will, at the very top of the program. And he's saying, men praying, not only are, is the church supposed to pray, but specifically the men are called to lead and participate in this ministry of prayer. I wish he would have said something different. Because prayer is not the best thing for me. It's not my greatest skill. I know as a pastor I'm supposed to dedicate myself to the ministry of the word and to prayer. But it's a whole lot easier to, to tinker with, with commentaries and history and reading and debates about theology, quite frankly, than it is to drop down on my knees and raise my hands and plea, plead God to do his work in my life and in the world. So he says, not only therefore, saying that men are at the head of this work, but he talks about posture, doesn't he? He says, raising holy hands. Now, the stereotypical male isn't the most expressive of creatures, is he? The joke is that at the end of the day, a man has used up his 10,000 words, but a woman has 30,000 words, and she's got 20,000 more to go. And so you get the, again, stereotypical, uh-huh, Yes, dear, that's nice, very good. Men are typically, again, stereotypically, this, not all men are this way, typically not the most expressive. So when the Apostle Paul says, raise holy hands, guys are going, putting their hands in their pocket, going, he's not going to call on me to do that, is he? But before you get uncomfortable, let's think about what he's saying here. He's not just talking about a body posture, although I think that is an implication. He's talking about culturally at the time, lifting hands in prayer or supplication was something that the pagans did, that the Jews did. It was very common. So in our worship, then, if we, if we can say that, in our worship, our hands must be what? Holy. Holy hands. And yes, men, we need, we need this. We need this exhortation. Holy hands. I was reminded of Psalm 24, where the, it's the great question. Who? Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Who can stand in the holy place? He who has clean hands, holy hands, and a pure heart. Clearly, only those who have been cleansed by God's Redeemer, Jesus, are in a position to lift up hands like these. And so then that holy hand, the lifting of the holy hand or the presenting of the hand, and, and if, if, you, if you're a poet, you can see the hand is a, is a metaphor for the life, isn't it? There's a, a, a contemporary Christian artist that I knew in the 80s or 90s, and, and there's a song that they sang where I'm just going to, some guy said, I'm just going to barge right into heaven. And, and the song goes, man, you must be kidding. Your hands are blood red. So the hands are, are a symbol of our entire lives, that what we do with our hands can be seen as a reflection of everything that's meaningful to us. If I were to take a picture of everything that you touched this week and then put it on a collage, that would pretty, pretty much tell me what you're all about, wouldn't it? It would tell me where you like to go and what you like to do and what you don't like to do. 
and even when you're angry, which is what I'm getting at, because it's interesting to me that he, he contrasts holy hands with quarreling and fighting. So our alternative between holy hands, Paul says, is arguing with each other or fighting with each other, two things that guys are very good at. Picking fights, picking verbal fights, picking bones, nitpicking, criticizing. Men are good at that. Fighting with each other, hitting each other. Men are good at that. So this is what our text says. This is, this is the text that we're looking at. And I think, and I hope you agree, that this has a lot to say about gospel masculinity. So now I'm going to move to the second part of my sermon, which is the application. And I'm going to apply it in three points. I'm going to first talk about these substitutes to gospel masculinity. And we can even see these in the text. You can see that, that if true masculinity has something to do with lifting holy hands, then fake masculinity has something to do with fighting and arguing, right? So that's what I'm going to, just, to sort of open up first as substitutes. And then, having shown you that, you're going to see the importance and the unique character of true, true gospel masculinity. And then we'll see how that is contagious in a congregation, which I think is Paul's whole goal in writing this letter. So first of all, the substitute to gospel masculinity is selfish or self-centered or selfishness. This self-centered substitutes. You know, society at large is fairly well organized around one person, and that's me. No matter who you are, you're pretty much at the center of the world, according to society. Even to the point that the generation behind me is called the me generation, right? And this, right, I think this comes on the heels of sort of the World War II generation, knowing service and sacrifice, and culturally or sociologically, there's such a contrast with the me generation, so they've got the label me generation. Or thinking about this, I, I have at Barnes & Noble, they, they have these books well-placed at the checkout line, and I've, on more than one occasion, decided to, to buy one, sort of you know, like the candy at the, at the grocery store. And one of those books, I didn't buy this one, but I flipped through it, Tips on Dating for Guys, or How to Pick Up a Girl Every Time. <laughs> no, I wasn't looking. I was just curious, just curious. <laughs> And you know what? These are basically glorified con artist books. That's all they are. They're basically ways to trick naive and unsuspecting women into thinking you're sincere when actually you only have one thing on your mind. And if you need to know what that is, ask me after church. <laughs> Even when society appears to be selfless, selfless, it's not. For example, there's a uh, a, a business management theory that came out in the 90s is still pretty popular. It's called servant leadership. And the idea is if you keep your employees or your customers' needs first place, guess what? You'll make your profit margins. You'll get a promotion. You'll accomplish your goals. So thinking about other people really is just an end run around the idea of getting what you want in the first place. All these things, I think, are examples of how our society sets forth masculinity that is false because it's self-centered. And the reason, I think, that we're self-centered in our masculinity has to do with this one word, insecurity. Now, that's, this is an application from the text. What do people who argue, what is true about people who are constantly arguing? What is true about people who are constantly fighting? 
They are insecure. From a psychological point of view, people that argue, people that complain, people that fight are insecure. The way it works is this. When you're not sure if you can stand, you go out there and pick on somebody else, and you get a sense of security by picking on other people, by putting down other people, by being right. And so we have this, this fake notion of security, which is, I think, at the heart of all the fake masculinities that are out there. Think about this. Only a man who is secure in himself can raise his hands, raise holy hands, and pray to God for the salvation of all people. Only a secure man can do that. Apart from the security that God provides, what are we left with? We have to find and to create our own security. And that's a pretty hard job because we're creatures made by God to be secure only in Him. So if we're manufacturing our own sort of, you know, plastic security, it's not going to do the job. So we're going to be constantly on the run. And I think the outcome is that most men live essentially as insecure people. And so they go to great lengths to create a godlike security from themselves. And guess what the Bible calls this? Idolatry. This is idolatry. Because God said, I'm the one who rescued you out of Egypt. I'm the one who parted the, the Red Sea. I'm the one who sent all the plagues. I'm the one who was with you in the desert. Therefore, you should have no other gods before me. Nobody else is doing that for you. You didn't do it for yourself. I did it for you. I'm God. You're not. And I think to make matters worse, women, girlfriends, wives, partners, whatever, agree to go along with our idol programs. So they figure it's easier to sort of support us in our insecure efforts to manufacture our own security than it is to sort of expect us to actually trust in God. And so it winds up being a, a self-defeating cycle. And if I can be specific in this application, because that's what applications are for, think about pornography for a moment. Pornography is all about insecure guys looking for security from a woman who says he's perfect, she's perfect, life is good, and so it's this fantasy world that men live in when they look at pornography. It's all about insecurity. For a moment, the man who looks at porn feels secure. And that's why porn addicts make terrible husbands, because they're extremely insecure. And they're constantly looking for a fantasy, an illusion, a myth, to satisfy the thing that only Jesus has made to satisfy. Also, to be specific, I think this is what domestic violence is about. Men who are fundamentally hurt and insecure, frustrated, fearful, they, they bring out their anger, they bring out their fear on the people that they live with. They lash out in their insecurity, and, and the people in those families, again, accept such behavior as normal when it's not. So whether you're a man who looks at porn, a man who hurts yourself or others, you think you act very masculine, but in fact you're not. Just like men who fight all the time. Just like men who complain all the time. Just like men who argue, constantly, constantly argue. These all are substitutes to true masculinity. Whether you're obsessed in your work or obsessed in your hobbies, all of these things are what God, God wants us to see as, as things that are substitutes to the kind of comfort and, and acceptance 
and rest and peace, that shalom that Scripture promises, which comes from trusting in God. All of them are contrasted to the confidence in God that a true man, a gospel man has when he raises holy hands in prayer. So here's a to-do for you, because guys like to-dos, right? Ask yourself this question, what am I afraid of? Don't ask yourself, am I a Christian? That's too easy. It's very easy for guys to make promises, and then we move on. Ask yourself this question, what am I afraid of? The answer to that will show you where your masculinity is falling short, where your manliness needs to grow into the gospel, or the gospel better needs to grow into your manliness at that point. What am I afraid of? So we've seen a substitute to gospel masculinity. Let's look, secondly, at its unique character. We've seen what it isn't. What makes it so special? What makes it so unique? I think that what's so unique about true gospel masculinity, just to be very obvious, it's not self-centered. And so it stands out. It's very, it's very apparent when you meet someone who isn't obsessed with himself. It's, it's actually quite refreshing. You meet someone whose whole life doesn't revolve around his hobbies or his work or his secret sins, whatever they may be. It's not insecure because you can tell when someone is centered on himself at some point in his eye, in his manner, in his words, all around the edges, in between, there's insecurity. How is it unique? Gospel masculinity looks away from self to someone else who is secure. God in the Bible again and again is portrayed as a rock, as a rock that cannot be moved. He's the rock of ages. He is, he is eternal. He never changes. And so when a man looks to this rock, when a man trusts in this rock, when a man depends on this rock, that man himself partakes of that security. He enjoys and appreciates it. He's able to have it as his own. And I think that's what happened to the Apostle Paul, by the way. If you look in our text, he gives a brief biography, just before our text, actually, in chapter 1, verse 12. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. I wonder if Paul said, raise holy hands and stop arguing and fighting, if he wasn't drawing from his own personal experience. I know what it's like to be apart from Christ. I've been there. You do nothing but argue and fight. That's why holy hands and prayer is the antidote or the indication that someone has trusted in Christ. I've been there, guys. I know it. That's what I think Paul's saying. I receive mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Imagine if you're an insecure man, and all of a sudden, overflowing grace enters your life. What kind of changes would that make? Well, first of all, it's going to wash out all the junk that's there. And second of all, overflowing grace brings with it the most remarkable, calm, care, trust, patience in God that you can ever imagine. So I think that's why this is a good application of our text in verse 8. Prayer, by definition, is looking to someone else. 
And so a secure person, gospel masculinity is unique because it looks to someone else. And then second, in looking to someone else, it lets go of everything. Think about holy hands. This is a, this is a, um, a hands-on demonstration, if you will. Go ahead and close both fists. Go ahead and try it. Now open both fists. So holy hands is not this. When you look to someone else, you relinquish. It feels good. Let it go. Let it go. And in prayer, you open holy hands. You open your hands. You turn them up to God, and you say, God, I have nothing. I need everything that you provide. If you don't give it to me in these empty hands, I will walk away with nothing. But that's okay, because I trust you. You are the eternal rock of my salvation. If I walk away with nothing, I know it's good. But an insecure person can't walk away with nothing. And so he winds up twisting and manipulating his prayers to God. He's not praying for all people. He's just praying for himself, his own selfish needs, if he prays at all. And so with that kind of an attitude, thirdly, gospel masculinity is unique because not only does it look to someone else, not only is it free to give it all away to God, but now it's free to risk everything for God. Because a gospel man, because gospel masculinity takes its orders from God, it's free to give himself away. Here's how it works. The church is a people whom God has given immeasurable riches freely, apart from merit, apart from works, by the ransom gift of God's only Son, Jesus Christ. First Timothy 2, we just read it. As a result of this ransom gift, his perfect life for my broken life, his cursed death in place of my cursed death, I can give myself away, men, I can give myself away because he has guaranteed that my life is forever safe in the hands of Jesus. There is no other safe place except in the hands of God. And a gospel man knows that and lives that way. And lifting holy hands to me is a metaphor for his whole life. And Paul puts it first in the order of a healthy church. Men, give yourselves away to God first of all by prayer, and then everything else that flows from that. I thought here of, the, of one of my favorite quotes by the missionary Jim Elliott. He is no fool, paraphrase, lifting holy hands to God, gives away what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Man, we are not fools if we give away the stuff that we can't keep, our lives, our possessions, our bios, everything around us that we depend on. We're not foolish to give that away, to gain the eternal reward and security of knowing that God loves us and we have a forever home in heaven with Jesus, our Savior. That's not a foolish bargain. That's an investment good in any economy. Here's a to-do for this point. Since gospel masculinity is so unique, here's what we need to do. We need to encourage this kind of risk-friendly culture in our church. Men, we need to make this church a church that is friendly to this kind of gospel risk. Statistically, churches are composed of more women than men. And it depends on the denomination. Some denominations are like 80-20, 90-10. The PCA, 65-35. On average, 65-35. Why aren't more men in church? I think it has to do with this. 
I think it has to do with we've allowed masculinity to be watered down or defined by culture to such a degree that true risk, true danger, true courage is not welcomed. And then what happens? The guys stay home. Look, if it's not dangerous, if it doesn't take courage, if it doesn't involve risk, I'd rather watch football or ride my bike, which is what they do, which is what I would do if I didn't have to be here. That's a joke, but do you get it? <laughs> Men, we do not need personality transplants when we become Christians, but we do need to plug into the security that only God can give and then abandon ourselves with the personality that he's given us to do the work of God in the world. That's it. That's what it's all about, and that's our to-do for this point. Third point this morning, and my final point, is we've seen, first of all, I explained the text, but then I applied it, first of all, by showing some false substitutes. Then I talked about how unique gospel masculinity is. I'd like to conclude with what I would call the leadership principle, or the contagious effect of gospel masculinity. True gospel masculinity is contagious. But I have to qualify that. Masculinity is contagious. So it's going to be contagious whether it's gospel or not. So if you've got a fake manhood that's being spread about the church like a virus, guess what's going to happen? That's the culture of the church. That's the message that we hear. That's the message that we talk about, even if we never say so. And so we want to recognize that masculinity is contagious so the masculinity, the manhood we want photocopied in the church, because it is photocopied, is the masculinity that is grounded on God's grace through Jesus Christ. I think Paul puts men first in his specific instructions on worship for a reason. Men set the tone. Even if, by, even if in setting the tone they do, it, they do so by withdrawing and absenting themselves, that itself sets the tone. Think about your homes. Maybe that's too threatening. Think about your parents' homes. Okay? And then later, when you have the strength, think about your own home. Men set the tone, period. That's, that's sort of hardwired into the world. It's not because, well, we are sinners, but it's not because we're sort of looking for dominance or anything like that. It's part of the way God has built, it's kind of at the framework of creation. And so since that's God's creational order or structure, it is incumbent upon us to set the tone of God's grace, of risk that is grounded in God's grace. I do not think men are the most gifted of creatures. This isn't about gifting. Instead, it's about God's sense of humor. Let's just be honest. Quite often in my home, it's no, there's no doubt about who's more gifted. And she isn't me. But what God has called me to do is to trust and to be secure in him and to step out even when I'm not comfortable and to trust that he's going to take care of me. He's got my back. He's got my flanks, and it's all going to be okay. And believe me, that is so difficult for me at times. God is not building a resume-based kingdom. He's building a family. And at the heart of a godly family is a father 
And at the heart of a godly father is a man who knows he needs grace more than anything else. And not only that, that knowledge gives him such a security that he is free, overwhelmingly free, to share love and care for those that God has entrusted to him. And when men get the program, it filters down to everyone else. When men are engaged in God's mission of bringing salvation to the world, by gospel-centered prayer, the whole church gets the mission. Here's your to-do. Since manliness, since masculinity is contagious, let's think about the lives of the men that God is calling to lead us. Let's think about the, the masculinity of a pastor that God is calling to serve here. Let's think about the masculinity of future elders and deacons in the church. Let's think about the masculinity of the elders that we have. Let's pray for them. Let's be the kind of men, men, let's be the kind of men that will help promote this in the church. The danger is if we allow a man with, without this at his core, okay, he may have redeemed thinking, he may know redeemed theology, he may know sort of the ins and outs of how, of how a church is to function, but at the heart is not secure in the gospel of God's grace, if we allow that into the leadership of the church, the consequence, the outcome, is that that insecurity gets photocopied, it gets spread like a virus. And so Paul takes such pains to elaborate in detail the nature of leadership in these pastoral epistles. But, beloved, it's not just a checklist. It begins, I think, with this idea of holy hands, secure in Christ, free to pray, free to serve. Let me conclude. We've taken a look at what I believe is a picture of true masculinity this morning. I believe that Paul's teaching on prayer points to the great need we, we have for men who lead in the church to be secure in their salvation, to be secure in their faith, and to be strong and willing to take risks for God. Too often we look at the character lists, we check off the boxes, and then we're left with nothing but a moral but insecure leader. The lists have their place, and we will spend some time on them in future sermons in this series. However, we need to remember, and this is a great point, Tim Keller in his new book, The Prodigal God, quotes one of his seminary professors as saying this, the main barrier between Pharisees and God is not their sins, but their damnable good works. We are not merely looking for men of good works. We are looking for gospel men, men who are masculine in a gospel way, men who understand that apart from God, they have no hope, but in God, they can do all things through him who gives me strength. This is our great need. Let us cry out to God and ask him to give us not the leaders we deserve, but the leaders we need, gospel men in this age. Let us pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for your work in our lives. Yes, Lord, you, you spoke to us as men this morning, as males, but men and women, boys and girls, need to hear the message that their only security, their only peace comes not, comes not from our own fabrication, but only from you. And God, you know this is that contagious message that the world is longing to see. Because trusting in self looks so very much the same no matter what form it takes. But trusting in God is radically different.
And Lord, it is our prayer that the leaders, the men you raise up to lead in this church, the men you have raised up to lead in this church, and that you will continue to raise up, will be men of this sort, will be men of this character, of this vein. Would you do this to to us, Lord, and for us? We don't deserve it, but through Christ we are bold to ask. In his name we pray. Amen.